I want to take us back, uh, oh, four or five hundred years before Christ this morning, and I want you to think about an experience of a guy by the name of Nehemiah. Now, if you grew up in church, you, or if you've been a Christian for a while and been in church, you probably know the name Nehemiah. Nehemiah served in the Persian King Artaxerxes' court, and uh, he was pretty high up. In fact, some uh, research shows he might have even been second in command behind Artaxerxes there. God had given him favor in Artaxerxes' life. But here we are, let's say the year 445 B.C., if we want to pinpoint a date. The Bible tells us it was the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. That's the reason we can kind of zero in on a, on a particular date. And Nehemiah, who's a Jew, serving in this Persian king's court during the Babylonian exile, when the Jews, remember, had been carted off from Jerusalem into exile and uh, by the Babylonians. And so he's serving in this Persian court. The Jews are starting to return uh, slowly back to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is in absolute ruins uh, following the devastation at the hands of uh, first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. So uh, he comes to Jerusalem eventually in 444 B.C., Nehemiah does, surveys the damage, and if you remember, his claim to fame is that with the hand of God upon him, he's able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days. Just an incredible uh, miracle. But in, in 445 B.C., he's in the capital of the Persian Empire at that time, the winter capital. It was Shushan. It was the name of the winter capital. And someone comes from Jerusalem, some messengers come all the way from Jerusalem, and they meet with Nehemiah, some Jews. And here's what they said to him. You don't have to turn there, but they said, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province there in Jerusalem are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates burned with fire. Then the Bible tells us when Nehemiah heard this, he wept, and he prayed for days. Almost all of Nehemiah chapter 1 is comprised of Nehemiah's incredible prayer, and it's a remarkable demonstration of faith. It reminds us of Daniel, who before him, under the Babylonians, uh, before the Persians took over, uh, had served in a king's palace, and he too had been an incredible man of faith. But then after praying about it, Nehemiah goes to King Artaxerxes, and he boldly and respectfully lays out a very detailed request that involved sending him, sending Nehemiah back to Jerusalem with edicts from the king to give to neighboring kings along the way, demanding that they leave Nehemiah alone and that they in fact pitch in to help with supplies, to help Nehemiah and the people uh, rebuild the wall. And Nehemiah tells us that the king granted them these edicts, these requests, according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then when Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem and he's viewed the devastation, he assembles a team of leaders and he tells them something similar. He says, I told them of the hand of God which had been good upon me. When's the last time you can remember really seeing the good hand of God upon your life? You know, like the, the Jews in Nehemiah's day, the Jewish Christians of the first century needed to hear that the hand of God 
was still very much upon them. That God had not forsaken them or forgotten their plight. That even though they were facing unspeakable persecution and difficulties and trials under the uh, regime of Nero, the Roman emperor in that time, uh, they were in good hands. Because God the Son, their high priest, was with them. So as we teach through and read through and study through this series in Hebrews, we're calling it Unshakable Faith, Trusting God in Trying Times. And I don't remember how many messages we've had in the series so far, but they're all available on video. Uh, but we come to a, a, a section where the, the author is continuing to discuss this notion of Jesus as our high priest. You know, we introduced that last week. <clears throat> we talked a little bit about the high priest. But this week, I want to encourage you to turn with me to chapter 5 as we talk about Jesus, our high priest. In the first four chapters of Hebrews, the author has reminded his readers, and by extension us, that Jesus Christ is superior to anything and everything that Judaism has to offer. He's superior to angels. He's superior to the sacrificial system. He is worth staying close to. Um, he's superior to Moses. Now he's talking about how he's superior to Aaron and those in the priestly line from Aaron. And along the way, in addition to just challenging and encouraging his readers by how good our Lord is, he's also issued a couple of challenges, some pretty stern warnings for those who might abandon their faith in the midst of trials. And we've got another, the third of five such warning passages in Hebrews coming up here in a couple of weeks that we'll get to. But uh, last week, he challenged the readers and us, again, in God's timeless word, the inspired word of God, to boldly come before our high priest, Jesus Christ. We looked at just three verses last week, verses 14 to 16 of the last chapter. But now he's going to reassure us that we're in good hands by just giving some more details about who Christ is in his role as high priest. So he's going to give us some more detail. First, I want you to uh, take a look at, at verse 1, and, and we see Jesus, our high priest, is connected to the people. He's connected to the people. To qualify for the high priesthood in Israel, you had to be a man. This man in the priesthood had, would, would stand between God and his people as their representative. And obviously, the representative needed to be connected to the people. That's the kind of the nature of being a representative. I mean, for example, in the United States, in a political realm, we, we send other human beings to represent us in Congress. That's why they call it the House of what? Representatives, right? I mean, we don't send dogs or pigs or donkeys, although now that I think about it, I could think of a few congressmen where the jury's still out. Are they? We won't go there. Uh, but he's connected. We, the, the representative needs to be connected to the people, to us, so that he can effectively represent us before whoever it is. In this case, God the Almighty, the creator of the universe. Look at verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men, taken from among men, He's connected to us. He's one of us. Last week, remember we said in verse 15 that our high priest, because he was one of us, can sympathize. He was tempted as we are. We talked a lot about that. It means he suffered in the same way. He shared in our sufferings. 
Uh, earlier on in our study of Hebrews, in chapter 2, we saw that Jesus Christ had to be in all things made like his brethren. He's one of us. He's one of us. He's connected to the people. That's what makes him such an amazing, valuable, gifted, qualified high priest. And the writer goes on to tell us here in in verse 1 that he's taken from among men and he's appointed for men in things pertaining to God. So he's anything that we might need that relates to God, he's our envoy. He's our sort of our representative. He's our advocate elsewhere, the Bible says, or our intercessor. And that he might both offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And that's what the high priest did before the time of Christ. And, you know, when someone is representing you, you want them to know you, to understand you, to be one of you. And if they're presenting offerings and gifts uh, to someone important on your behalf, that's especially true. And if they're presenting offerings and and gifts to the creator of the universe, and they're paying for your sins, you want them to really know you, right? If I wanted to deliver a gift to someone important, right? Uh, maybe a close friend, but someone that it was important to me that that they got a gift, and I couldn't do it myself. Maybe my schedule prevented me from doing it, so I had to, to hire somebody to go deliver this gift that was very meaningful to me to a very important person. I'm not going to just hire someone I've never met, you know, 1-800-CALL-AN-UBER or a deliverer or whatever. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to find someone who knows me personally. Someone who convey, can convey my message to this important person. Can, can convey my deepest heartfelt feelings to the recipient. Someone who can look the person in the eye and say, I know JB, and he wants you to know such and such. Or I know JB, and he worships and adores you, and this is something he wanted you to have. He can't be here right now, but he wants you to have this. See, the best representatives are those who are connected to those whom they represent. So we're in good hands because our high priest Jesus is connected to us. But the writer goes on to say not only is Jesus our high priest connected to the people, he's compassionate toward the people. See, I don't want the high priest just to know me. I want him to be like me. I want him to be favorably disposed toward me to think fondly toward me. Remember we talked about what that word sympathy means last week. To means to, to be able to relate in, in terms of suffering, that he's been everywhere that I've been. He goes on to say he, this high priest, can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Why? Since he himself is also subject to weaknesses. Before the time of Christ, in Israel's day, the high priest had to be compassionate. Priests like Aaron and those in his line grew out, the, 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 the compassion that they had grew out of their own consciousness of their own sin. They weren't perfect the way we're going to find out Jesus is. So for them, they were conscious of their sin. Notice he goes on to say, because of this, he, the high priest, is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer 
sacrifices for sins. Now, of course, Jesus, the ultimate high priest, the substance of the shadow that had been the sacrificial priestly system, never sinned. So his compassion grows out of his connectedness, his empathy, his sympathy, like we talked about last week. And even though he never sinned, he experienced the same kind of suffering and experiences that we did, and even more so, as we said, because he, Satan threw everything he could at him, and he never sinned. With us, he throws stuff at us, and we, we sin, because the Spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. So he's still equally connected and equally compassionate for us. And that's the role of a high priest, is to have compassion. The Greek word that's used here is used only here in the New Testament. It's the only time it ever appears. It's translated compassion in our English Bibles. It's not even used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a very obscure word. And, and, and it means literally, if we were to translate it literally, it means to deal gently with. Compassionate. In fact, most other English translations translate this word that way. The, the New American Standard, the NIV, the English Standard, they all say he can deal gently with those you know, whom he's representing. Jesus knows how to be gentle. Aren't you glad that our representative is gentle with us? Remember what Jesus said during his earthly ministry, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. Matthew eleven twenty nine here is a, is a sanctification or discipleship passage. Remember chapter 28, he says, come unto me, or verse 28, right before this, come unto me, that's the invitation to salvation, eternal salvation. But then those who respond by faith and know the Lord Jesus become born again by faith, now he's saying, okay, I'm gentle, so learn from me. Follow me, stick close to me, and you'll find rest for your souls. And we talked in the past about how that word souls just means life. You'll find rest. We looked at that when we talked about rest for the weary. But aren't you glad that our high priest is of a gentle nature? And by the way, the quality of, of gentleness is a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, that we, as we try to become Christ-like, as we yield to the Spirit and not the flesh, as we walk by faith and not by sight, we too should exhibit that gentleness. Um, Paul put it this way, that with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. In fact, in Philippians, he says, let your gentleness be made known to all men. So Jesus is compassionate. He's gentle toward the people. Have you ever been facing a, a really tough crisis, going through some kind of heartache or maybe a tragedy, uh, and you're trying to talk with your friends about it, and they just don't seem to get it. I mean, they love you, they care, they're doing their best to really be there for you, but you can tell as you're talking and sharing these deepest burdens of your heart with them that they don't really understand your plight. In fact, in some cases, maybe as you're talking to your friends and being transparent about the heartache that you're facing, maybe in some cases they're even a little harsh with you. You know, they're like, oh, tough love, i got to just buck up, you know, that kind of thing. You ever been there? It's, in those situations, you know, you, you're thinking, that's not what I need. And then maybe God in his graciousness leads you to another person or a friend. And maybe you didn't even know them all that well, but somehow in his sovereignty your paths cross and you, you feel led to share your story. 
And, and you may not have even had any idea that this person could relate, but you can see it in their eyes. You look in their eyes and you can see they get it. Maybe they tear up. They've been there. There's a sort of gentle connection there. And you feel relieved and comforted and fortunate to have someone who will listen without judging. Well, that's Jesus. That's our high priest. He's connected to us and compassionate toward us. But the writer goes on to spend a great deal of time in this section talking about how he's also called by God for the people. Called by God. In the Jewish religion, a man could attain the high priesthood only by divine appointment. Only those whom God had chosen served in this office. These, of course, as I said, were primarily Aaron and then his successors. But after Israel lost her sovereignty as a nation during the exilic time and by the time of the first century when Christ comes on the scene, really the high priesthood had lost this idea. It was more of a political appointment by then. I mean, think of Caiaphas in Jesus' day. He was by no means called by God and someone who met the qualifications that we see in Scripture. But during Israel's earlier days, before the captivity, this was a serious matter to take on the duties of the priesthood. You had to be called by God. And you dare not try to take on the duties of the priesthood without this calling. Just think of Korah. You remember the story of Korah in Numbers? Uh, he and his co-conspirators uh, tried to lead this rebellion against Aaron and Moses. You remember that story? I think it's number 16. And what happened? The, the, the earth literally opens up and swallows him and all of his co-conspirators and his family and all their belongings up and closes back up over. It's a pretty serious thing. Or we could think of Saul. Remember Saul who had that unlawful sacrifice, offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, uh, and getting ahead of the Lord. And what happened? God judged him by taking away his kingdom and his reign. Because of why? Because he tried to perform priestly functions. And he was not called by God to do so. And then what about King Uzziah? Here's an interesting one. We get a picture in, uh, uh, in uh, Second Chronicles of King Uzziah whose pride led him to enter the temple and burn incense on the altar. And the other priests who understood the seriousness of this moment, because King Uzziah was not called by God to do so, the Bible tells us they withstood King Uzziah. And they said to him, hey, it's not for you, King Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests. And what happened? Right there before their very eyes, while King Uzziah is holding the censer in his hand to burn incense, his forehead breaks out in leprosy. And the Bible tells us he was a leper until the day he died. Why? Because a high priest is called by God. And, and Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, the writer of Hebrews tells us, is called by God on our behalf. Notice what he says in, in verse 4. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. And he makes the connection for us in verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. The author wants to make sure that these first century Jewish Christians didn't assume incorrectly that Christ somehow 
was performing his priestly functions without the appropriate sanction of God the Father. And the writer here goes back to <clears throat> Psalm 2, and he quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, which we, he's quoted a lot in the earlier passages of Hebrew, where it says, It was he who said to him, it was God who said to him, to Jesus, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's, he's, he's quoting this passage like he did before to show that Christ's entire mission, his sonship, his kingship, his high priestly ministry, is ordained and sanctioned by God. Psalm 2 in particular reminds us that, that Christ is the Davidic heir who's going to rule the nations one day. He's going to be the king of kings in this one world government that we've been talking about in our Sunday morning Bible study that Satan's going to rule for seven years when he indwells the Antichrist, but ultimately Christ is going to come back and rule with a rod of iron in perfect peace and justice and righteousness and take the throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, honor just like the Bible promises that he would. But the So the writer is here sort of talking about Christ's sort of ordination, if you will, that, that God's hand of blessing is on Christ, that this, this is something Christ is doing with God's blessing, you might say, by hearkening back to his idea as a son and as a king. But then he goes on in verse 6 to talk about how he is a priest forever according to, the, to Melchizedek, quoting here from Psalm 110. The same one God who de declared Christ to be the king has also declared him to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we've talked about this before, but just to review, remember the Bible presents Christ as having four offices, prophet, priest, king, and judge. Christ is God. As such, he is immutable, unchanging. He is he's eternal. Uh, Christ didn't come into existence in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. He is God. God eternally exists in three persons. God, the, the triune Godhead, created the universe, spoke time and space in, in, into existence. Genesis 1 tells us, let us create man in our image, plural, speaking of the Godhead there. So we don't mean to imply that somehow uh, Jesus is adding to his, his very nature, but yet the function of these offices does take place over time. So he came to earth in bodily form as prophet. And for three and a half years, he was proclaiming the kingdom and teaching people about what God's plan of the ages is, calling people to faith in him, performing miracles and signs. He was a prophet. He today is functioning at the right hand of God in heaven as our priest, which is what we're talking about this morning. He's going to uh, come back someday as king and take the throne and be the king of the world. <laughs> Again, he's already the king of kings and lord of lords. But as Paul said, someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess because he's going to take the throne. But guess what? In the final analysis, after the thousand-year earthly reign on the old earth, before the new heavens and the new earth, he's going to take the throne at the great white throne and function as judge. And all those who have not received the free gift of eternal life by faith alone in Christ alone will be left trying to measure up based on their own works. And because their name's not found written in the, in the Lamb's Book of Life, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. So he's got these offices, but by referring back to Psalm 110 here, he's reminding us that Christ's priesthood was really given a thousand years before he ever began functioning in this role. Uh, a thousand years earlier in Psalm 110 it was announced. Uh, 
Similarly, his declaration, God's declaration about Christ's reign in the coming kingdom, you could go back 3,000 years from, you know, uh, when that was given. So God has a plan, and he's working out his, his plan. He's called by God for uh, the people. Now, we're going to talk more about Melchizedek in the coming uh, weeks. We get uh, Chapter 7 is really dedicated to Melchizedek. But for our purposes, what we need to understand is that Melchizedek, there was no succession of priests from Melchizedek who lived during Abraham's days like there is from Aaron. And what the author is trying to do is saying that, like he has been throughout his letter, Christ is even better than the Aaronic priesthood. Because it goes back even further. Remember, Abraham met Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the high priest. And like Jesus, king, the, the Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Um, we don't know a lot about Melchizedek, and there's been a lot of speculation. We're gonna, again, we'll talk more about that. But for the writer's purposes here, he's just basically saying <clears throat> that Christ is, is a priest that's been called by God. Melchizedek comes up again at the very end of this section, and I'll just tack this on here in verses 10 and 11. Again, called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And uh, he says, we, we really have a lot to say about Melchizedek, but I don't think you would understand it. Frankly, that's kind of the way I feel at this point. I'm not sure I would understand it, but we'll get into it more in chapter 7. So he's called by God uh, to represent the people. Who better to represent us? I mean, in a negotiation, if you will, it's best to have a mediator who can relate to both sides. And we don't come before the Almighty with some advocate, like a, a public defender who looked at their calendar 10 minutes previous and said, oh, i got to go to the courthouse and i got to fill in for some nobody that I've never even heard of. You know, we, we, we don't want a representative who we hope is at least a little bit better than someone else who might be representing us. We come before the Almighty with someone who is equally respected by both sides because he's got God's sanction upon him. God called him. In fact, not only did God call him, he is God. He's God the Son. Uh, so our high priest is connected to the people, compassionate toward the people, called by God for the people, and then we notice that he's courageous among the people. He's courageous among the people. The author draws attention to Jesus' passion ministry, which, by the way, would have been in recent memory of his readers. Now, what do we mean by passion ministry? Sometimes we use these words. I want to make sure we understand what we're saying. The passion of Christ refers to his death, burial, and resurrection, the events of Passover week when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and then he was betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, and then on the third day, Sunday morning, rose from the dead. So, But for his readers, remember the Hebrews was written in roughly 67 to 69 A.D. The crucifixion was 33 A.D. So this was the recent past, so to speak. Certainly the events of that day associated with an already significant day on the annual calendar, the Passover week, were no doubt uh, still fresh in their mind. In fact, many of these readers might have gotten saved that day at Peter's sermon that he preached uh, or, or you know, on the day of Pentecost uh, 50 days later. So this is all, you know, the, the events of Passion Week were very 
clear, very real to them. I mean, for us, we could all think back to those of us that are older to the events of 9-11, which is now coming up on 20 years ago. And when people talk about 9-11, we, we can relate. It's, it's, even though it's been 20 years, it's, it was a big deal. And we, can, we have certain memories. And, and just physiologically, we, we begin to have emotions and things that are conjured up, so to speak, because of what we have in our minds. And so he's going to invoke these passion events and the suffering that Christ endured related to the cru crucifixion to remind us that our high priest is a man of great courage. I mean, we don't want a representative that is sheepish, cowardly, apologetic, afraid to boldly go to bat for us. I mean, remember, Jesus is gentle, yes, but gentleness does not mean cowardly. In fact, some of the greatest shows of strength are shown with all gentleness. And that's, that's what we want, someone... Uh, with courage. Notice what he says here in verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, so he's referring back here to that time when he was on earth in physical form, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears. You don't think it took courage to do what Jesus did? To him, God, who was able to save him from death. It takes great courage to face pain and suffering and the torture of a Roman crucifixion. And Jesus did it willingly, undeservedly, and we might say, we might add, with the full omniscience of being God. I mean, whatever the most courageous thing we might have to face in life, you know, we, we, we can only do so with limited knowledge because we can't see the future. We might know something's going to be bad, but we don't know how bad. And others who... Maybe we're wrongly accused. Certainly injustice is not a new thing on planet Earth, and it was nothing new in Jesus' day. He was not the first person to face Roman crucifixion, crucifixion unjustly. In fact, many Christians uh, later on would be burned at the stake for their faith unjustly. And undoubtedly, in Jesus' day, there were people that faced unjust death. And they might likewise go face this with courage but they had limited knowledge and, in, and even though they were courageous Jesus was even more so because as God he was omniscient he knew what it was going to feel like when those nails were pounded into his hand he knew how that thorn precisely how it was going to feel and yet he willingly and undeservedly and he cried out to God and God answered right God answered his prayer and saved him from death he was resurrected. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. Christ's boldness, his courage, was really a hallmark of his earthly ministry. It doesn't relate just to his high priestly ministry in the present age. Uh, as he lived and walked about for three and a half years, and really even for 33 years, we could go back to his birth, the incarnation, he knew the full extent of what awaited him. And yet he had courage. Some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But, he, but look, he speaks boldly. They could tell by looking and listening to Jesus he was a man of courage. A man, the son of man, yet the son of God. And notice the writer goes on to say, Though he was a son, he learned obedience. Now this is kind of puzzling, isn't it? How can 
the Son of God, God in the flesh, learn anything, right? And there's a real mystery to this statement. We don't fully understand how Jesus' full deity and his full humanity work together, how they coalesce. We don't really understand that. That's called the hypostatic union. That's the theological term for it. I mean, how can you be fully God? But, but this, this statement here by the writer of Hebrews is, is not the only such mystery that we see. It's the same thing that we see in Luke's gospel. For example, when Luke tells us in the birth narrative that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. I and mean, how can God increase in wisdom? I thought he was God. He's omniscient, immutable, incapable of improvement or deterioration. Well, this again goes to that mystery of the hypostatic union. We don't, we don't understand how Christ could learn obedience by the things that he suffered. But somehow, in some way, not fully comprehensible to us 2,000 years later or to the first century recipients of this letter of Hebrews, the incarnation gave the already infinitely wise and perfect Son of God, God himself, experiential knowledge about the human condition so that through his suffering he was able to relate to us and be our perfect high priest who suffered. He's courageous. He's courageous. I don't, I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm glad that I didn't have to depend on somebody else because even the greatest heroes on earth are not even close to exhibiting the kind of courage that, that Christ had. Maybe more than any other characteristic of our great high priest, this one resonates with me. I mean, courage is precisely what we need most and what we most often lack when we're facing persecution. These first century Jewish Christians found themselves facing unspeakable persecution. We find ourselves facing some trying times here. Now, we've been talking about this in our Bible study hour, of course, you know, right now, here we are sitting in relative comfort, enjoying some fellowships of the Spirit together and teaching the Word of God, proclaiming the Word of God. But, you know, we get short-sighted sometimes and spoiled. You know, our freedoms that we've had in Western American Christianity are just really small in comparison to the timeline of human history of 6,000 years and even fairly small in relative to all of church history. And if you look back through 2,000 years of church history, you find many times that God's people have faced unbelievable persecution. And as I've said many times, even today at this very moment, there are more martyrs for the Christian faith on planet Earth than there ever have been in 2,000 years. We just haven't tasted it. And I believe that's going to change if the Lord tarries is coming. And so we're going to need to be reminded of books of the Bible like Hebrews and reminded of timeless truths that we have a courageous high priest so that when our faith is weak and we need courage, we can have someone that can exhibit that courage on our behalf. But finally, we see that he's a conqueror on behalf of the people. He's a conqueror on behalf of the people. None of the amazing qualities of the high priest that the writer of Hebrews has talked about, we touched on a few of them last week and then so far in this passage that we've looked at this morning, none of them would matter if in the end Jesus failed. There have been plenty of 
people who have braggadociously stepped up to the plate. I got this. Just leave it to me. I'll help. And fall flat on their face. But the writer wants his original audience and us to know that Jesus won. He conquered death, hell, and the grave when he rose from the dead. Notice what he says. Having been perfected. Now, we've talked about this word perfective. Teleao is the Greek word. It just means completed, accomplished a goal. Um, uh, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Who do you want representing you? Uh, we, we don't have a high priest who's pretty good or even very good or even outstanding. I mean, he's not batting 300 or 400, which would, by the way, if he was a baseball player, put him in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> he's batting 1,000. Satan gave it his best shot. He hurled all kinds of things. At Jesus, I mean, think about this from a cosmic element of the Satan's attempt to take over this world. He he tried to kill all the babies that were born around the time of Jesus' birth in Herod's day. He repeatedly uh, attacked him, and and there were plots and coups ultimately leading up to his betrayal. Uh, he tried to get Jesus to to succumb to temptation. <laughs> he he he's been attacking him, and here Jesus has succeeded at every turn, and even the the most significant moment when Jesus thought he finally won, I mean, when Satan thought he finally won this battle, I mean, Satan for, for three days was just so proud of himself. I did it. I, it's over. I won. He's dead and in the grave. And what happened? Christ rose again. He's perfect. He's batting a thousand. It is finished, he proclaimed from the cross because he knew something that Satan didn't that this was God's plan all along the climactic moment of human history when the, 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 the mankind whom God had created in his image willingly of his own free choice chose to rebel against God bringing the penalty of sin upon all of mankind for all have sinned Romans 5.12 and yet God the great redeemer even though we didn't, he didn't create this predicament we got ourselves into it he created a plan that could redeem all of mankind from the penalty of sin when Jesus Christ shed his blood for me and for you on the cross. And Jesus knew this is it, the final sacrifice. He knew he was going to defeat death, hell, and the grave, and he did. And from that, in that moment, Satan shrieked in horror, no doubt. Now what? And so for the last 2,000 years, having received the mortal wound, he's been doing everything he can in a last-ditch effort to usher in the one-world system. And we need to be conscious of that. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? So he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Well, what does that mean? I, I thought our salvation was based upon faith, not obedience. Well, why does he say you've got to obey him to have eternal salvation? Well, obeying God here means trusting God. We see this repeatedly in the New Testament, that to obey the gospel is to believe the gospel. Paul put it this way in Romans 10, talking about the nation of Israel, when he says, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Okay? So the Spirit of God convicts the world of its lostness. If you know the Lord, and hopefully you do, there was a time in your life when you felt the unmistakable conviction of the Holy Spirit. You may not have understood that's what it was, but you knew I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And in that moment, you obeyed, as it were, 
the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. That's what it means to obey uh, the gospel. Jesus tells us that the work of God is that you believe in him who sent you. That's God's work. He's out calling the world to him, as it were, convicting the world through God in the Spirit. And, it, and, and, and Jesus said that it's the will of him, that's God, who sent him, me, that everyone who sees the Son believes in him and has everlasting life. So that's what the writer meant when he says eternal salvation to all who obey the gospel. In Acts chapter 6, uh, Paul uh, here talks about being obedient, or not Paul, but talks about being obedient to the faith. And in First uh, Peter, Peter talks about being obeying the gospel of God. For uh, uh, the unbelievers are those who did not obey the gospel of God. So Jesus, our high priest, the conqueror, purchased eternal salvation, and it's available to all who obey him. How do you do that? By trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So we're in good hands because we have a winner as our high priest. He's our conqueror. And because of that, as Paul said, we too can be conquerors. In that great passage in Romans 8 where he's talking about our eternal security, he says, because our conqueror is our high priest, we are more than conquerors through Him. So we're in good hands. We're in good hands. So can you say like Nehemiah did 400 years before Christ that the good hand of God is upon you? We can say that. We just need to say it, don't we? We need to be reminded of that, that we're in good hands. So the takeaway this morning is just to remember the promise of Jesus himself who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch you out of my hand. He even goes further and he says the next verse, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. It is beyond comforting to know that we're in good hands, great hands of our High Priest, God's Son and our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage in Rome in Hebrews 5 and thank you for just the reminder that even though it, it may not mean as much to us as it did a Jewish audience in the original context we certainly understand what it means to, to need and to have a representative an, an envoy an advocate and in Christ your son we have that Lord help us to never forget that and as we talked about last week to come boldly before your throne because of the new and living way opened up for us uh, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.